Self-determination is an essential skill for autistic students. Interventions to improve self-determination are linked to positive academic and functional attainment results, and such interventions can even improve post-secondary outcomes. But this begs the question, how can OT professionals promote self-determination in the school setting? The research we are looking at on today's podcast examines the independence curriculum, which is designed to enhance self-determination among middle school-aged autistic students. The results are improvements in self-determination and goal attainment. After we break down this article, we are delighted to welcome the article's lead author, Dora Anwomeri. Her and I will discuss the practical implications of this research for OT professionals. So let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT-related journal articles, then invite on an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this topic of self-determination for autistic students, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. As of this recording, it is just $89 to sign up for the club, so I highly encourage you to do so. Bearing in mind that this could count as a CEU course, I wanted to state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is you will be able to recognize the importance of self-determination when planning OT interventions for autistic middle school students. Our second learning objective is you will be able to identify assessments that you can use to support self-determination. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we will bring on Dora to discuss how this research could play out in your practice. The article that we are reviewing today is called The Impact of an Independence Curriculum on Self-Determination and Function in Middle School Autistic Students. It comes to us from the Journal of Occupational Therapy, Schools, and Early Intervention, and it was published in 2020. So this article begins with this intro on functional skills, a persistent gap for autistic students. Approximately 62% of students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder spend 80% or more of their time in general education. These students have IQ levels that make them capable of doing grade level work. Thus, they are educated alongside their neurotypical peers. But IQ is not the only determining factor in adult success. Autistic students in general education settings have persistent challenges in daily living skills as they age. This is because they tend to not acquire daily living skills at the same rate as their neurotypical peers. Interventions targeting functional skills can help bridge this gap. So after introing this functional gap, the authors go on to talk about self-determination and functional skills. The authors argue that more focus should be allocated to bridging this functional gap for autistic students by addressing skills like daily living skills, executive function, self-regulation, and self-determination. Specifically, the authors focus on self-determination, which is a well-researched construct. Self-determination is known to be essential to the development of students with disabilities during the educational process. Self-determination begins in early experiences where children learn skills like problem-solving, self-regulation, and goal-directed persistence. There are existing programs that have a positive impact on self-determination, and these include the Self-Determined Learning Model of Instruction, the Access Program, Take Charge, and Project Team. I'll link to all of these in our show notes. But these programs, however, are not OT-specific, and there remains a clear lack of evidence-based interventions for occupational therapists to use with middle school students which leads us to this paper. So what was the intent of this research? 
This study's primary objective was to examine the efficacy of the independence curriculum with first-year autistic students in middle school. Here are the outcomes they measured. Self-determination, as measured by the AIR self-determination skill. Daily living skills, as measured by the Vineland Adaptive Behavior Scales and specific goals in self-regulation and executive function measured by goal attainment scaling. So what were their methods? This study was a pre-test, post-test, quasi-experimental design. The participants in this study were part of the New York City Department of Education ASD NEST program. Students were screened with the middle school checklist and qualified for occupational therapy services. Principals, teachers, students, and parents signed consent forms. Pre-tests and post-tests were administered using the three instruments that I mentioned above. As we mentioned, the intervention they were studying is called the independence curriculum. Through this curriculum, students participated in weekly occupational therapy groups outside of the classroom. The groups consisted of five students and met for 40 to 45 minutes. Sessions focus on several units, including students' roles and responsibilities, instrumental activities of daily living, social participation and interest, self-advocacy, and community integration. So what were the results of this intervention? 13 autistic students participated in this study. For their self-determination results, as measured by the AIR self-determination skills student version, there was a significant increase in their self-ratings of overall self-determination level. This was driven by a statistically significant increase in the opportunity subscale of this measurement. There was no significant difference in the scale as rated by parents or educators. Looking at daily living skills, there was a significant increase in community skills as measured by the Vineland Adaptive Behavior Skills, as rated by the parent. The increase fell short of being statistically significant. There was no significant change in personal or domestic skills, which were not a focus of the curriculum. And in that third area, specific goals in self-regulations and executive functions, the results were that per goal attainment scaling, all students met at least one goal, and overall 70% of their goals were met. 64% of executive functioning goals were met, as were 78% of self-regulation goals. So in their discussion and implications for OT practice, the authors share that the results of this study suggest that implementing the independence curriculum led to significant changes in students' self-rating of self-determination, and goal attainment and self-regulation in executive function, and in community skill development. The findings of this study have the following implications for OT provision to autistic middle school students. The authors state that OT should incorporate self-determination goals in students' IEPs, and that the independence curriculum provides an evidence-based framework to guide OT professionals when implementing functional independence skills. So heading into the conclusion, the authors shared that teaching functional skills to autistic students is vital for their future success. However, doing so requires a strength-based lens and targeted interventions. Self-determination, self-regulation, and executive function are all vital components to helping students become independent. Unfortunately, occupational therapy in schools has been too narrowly academic-focused, with treatment solely being based on deficits. The independence curriculum combines academic, functional, and strength-based interventions to treat the whole child. I love this paper because it was so practical and really showed you what an intervention and assessment can look like in the school setting. And I think when you hear the story behind this paper, you'll just understand how this came to be. I am so thankful to be inviting the lead author of the paper and one of the co-creators of the independence curriculum to this podcast. Dora Anwomeri, OTRL, is a PhD student in the Department of Occupational Therapy at New York University Steinhardt School. Dora holds a Master of Science degree in Occupational Therapy from New York Institute of Technology and a Bachelor of Science degree from Stony Brook University with a concentration in healthcare management. 
Dora has over 15 years of clinical experience, primarily in pediatrics, in various settings, including private practice, early intervention, and the New York City Department of Education ASD NEST program. In the Department of Education, Dora served as the ASD NEST and Horizon program's senior instructional therapist, a role that afforded her the privilege of collaborating with occupational therapists across all five New York City boroughs and at NYU. As part of the ASD programs, Dora helped develop workshops and trainings for therapists and staff on inclusion and evidence-based practices for autistic students. In addition to co-authoring the Independence Checklist and the Independence Curriculum, Dora is the first practicing occupational therapist in the Department of Education to receive an IRB, Institutional Review Board, approval to conduct a quasi-experimental research study, which was a paper that we looked at today. Dora's focus and passion are working with autistic individuals and examining interventions efficacy using strength-based approaches and inclusive practices. She is a married mother of two adorable children and loves watching her children evolve into empathetic, kind, and loving human beings. Her mission is to serve as a shining example for her children and the children that she works with daily. I am personally so inspired by Dora's story, and without further ado, I'm excited to patch her onto this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dora. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I am so thankful to have you here today. I feel like this topic of self-determination almost feels like a culmination of so many things we've talked about on the podcast. We've talked about strength-based practice. We've talked about self-efficacy. We've talked about self-management and all these big theories but today's paper and this discussion, I feel like takes those things and makes it so practical for therapists, especially therapists working with middle school students, um, but really all therapists to come to their practice with um, this concept of self-determination in mind. So I'm so excited to unpack all this. But before we do that, I really wanted to learn more about you and your story and start with how you first found OT. Yes, thank you so much, Sarah. Um, so how I found OT, actually being an occupational therapist from the beginning was an accident. I went to undergrad as an undecided major, then decided along the way, maybe junior year or maybe sophomore year, I wanted to maybe go through med school. So I was a pre-med major and then became part of this club called Minorities in Medicine. And in that club, it's really one day I just walked into the room and they had a fair with um, panelists of different people from different um, health professionals. And they came in and, uh, you know, we had um, pediatricians came in, we had physical therapists, we have so many other people that were in the room. And one lady stood up and was an occupational therapist. And prior to that, I had no idea what OT was, but there was something that she said that moment that just made me so inquisitive about the profession. So um, she described how, you know, she's able to really make such great profound impact on people and just, just the passion, the creativity that came with the profession was anything that I've never heard about. So immediately after that, I, I spoke to her pre, um, briefly. After that, she invited me to come to the university hospital for, to volunteer. And I did my volunteer hours. And I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy being there. I can't tell you how I saw the impact that she was making with every single client that she saw. And from that moment on, I knew I had found my life's career. So I became an occupational therapist. I went to school and went to OT school after my bachelor's, and here I am. Wow. I love hearing people's like aha moments about finding OT. I still remember where I was standing when someone told me that I should think about OT. And hearing your early experience just reminds me how gratifying our profession is um, and the delight we get to have in our clients and the time we get to spend with them to see that transformation. I think sometimes when we're in the grind of day-to-day -day work, 
the that can kind of like sit on the back burner of our mind and get lost. But um, oh, it's just so nice to be reminded of that and to hear those stories. So you hear about OT just randomly at this health fair. You volunteer. I'm curious how you get into schools and then how that connects to you becoming a researcher. That feels like a big story there. (laughs) So I'm just going to tell the story. But um, what a great story. Uh, A question. So I went into volunteer and got into OT school. And actually, just before I went to OT school and talk about alignment. So I had um, I have a, a, a good friend at that time. We were not we're, we were acquaintances and we ran into each other. She's like, oh, I'm going to OT school. And I'm like, so am I. She's like, have you heard about the um, DOE scholarship? And I'm like, what scholarship? Hmm. And that moment she like went ran downstairs to our copy room made a copy of the application form for me i filled it out like literally the same day and just send it off still on my way to ot school a few weeks later i got a call from the new york city department of education now called new york city public schools and they interviewed me for a DOE scholarship. With the scholarship comes with a commitment. But at that time, I knew I wanted to work with students. I, um, I love working with kids. So it was not a problem. Um, so once I passed my boards, I came to the DOE and then I started working with students. And not just even that, I was able to, um, my supervisor saw how energetic and perky, I guess I am. (laughs) And she immediately said, Dora, I have a a great school that I think you'll be a good match for. And I'm like, okay, what what school is that? She's like, call this number, meet with administration, interview, see if this is a good alignment, a good fit. So, and I did exactly that. I met them. They told me about this program called the ASD Nest Program. And within the ASD Nest Program is a community school with, with in collaboration with NYU and DOE. And the, the school is really a program for autistic students who are able to do grade level work. So at that time, I, you know, I learned like every OT student about autism, but there's something about the program was really interesting to me. It sounded like there was, it was forward thinking. It sounded like they're, you know, they really looked at students at, in a holistic sense and a lot of their, you know, ideologies is within group dynamic, which was really awesome to hear. So then I started working with the ASD Nest program, and that was almost two decades ago. So after that, obviously, there's minor um, transitions here and there, but I'm still there. Wow. I Well, you and I have this connection where we were both in school in New York. So I definitely knew about this DOE scholarship and the ASD Nest program while I was there. But I was like, whoa, how do therapists get involved in that? That feels like people who are very planned out to get on these tracks. And I love how it was a combination of serendipity and your hard work that kind of led you into these really cool opportunities. So you're working in this NEST program. Where does this desire for research come about? Um, I think lots of people will connect to finding like that school-based OT job, but not a lot of OTs take that next step into research. How did that happen for you? Right. So um, within the ASC NEST program, um, after maybe a year or two, I was kind of pulled into be a a collaborator with other therapists. So um, across at that time, we were just elementary school level. And uh, uh, over the years, obviously, it's grown to high school. But even working within the NEST program and having the students that we we were seeing, I've always been that inquisitive therapist, right? I'm always asking these questions and wanted to do more and constantly on the internet at that time in my books from OT school and just wanted to more and want to like make sure that what I was providing for the students was something that was, you know, one evidence-based and it was, there was nothing else that I was lacking. And over the years as the um, ASD NEST program grew, um, I became something called the, within the DOE called a, a senior instructional therapist. 
And within that position, it afforded me a chance to go to across the five boroughs within New York City and support other therapists. Um, so at this time, we had therapists in elementary school like myself. We had therapists in middle school and high school. And going to these schools, there was always, I got to get a peek of what was to come for my elementary school therapist. But obviously, there was always these nagging questions. Things were always coming up. Um, how, you know, are we doing enough? What are some of the things that we should be looking at? And one day, you know, considering I'm always looking up research articles, one day, Dr. Patton, Christy Patton, at that time was a, a professor at NYU and even, uh, later on became the, the chair of the department, sent me an article because she saw how much I love to read all these articles that were out there. And I would never forget that moment. That was an article by Duncan and Bishop. And I remember vividly, it was 2015 was um, the, the article um, came out. And that article was looking at autistic individuals, post-secondary outcome. And the students that they were looking at was the students, like the students that I was seeing in elementary school, right? These are students that went to community schools, right? Were maybe in an ICT setting. These are students that have what they were measuring, cognitive abilities of average to above average. And just in reading this literature at that time, you know, and if you've read literature articles, sometimes it can be very dense. But one thing that struck me was the population of the participant in the literature was over maybe 400 um, participants. And basically, in a nutshell, the article said that the students that our students, these autistic individuals, post-secondary outcome was not great, right? It was poor and when it comes to functional daily living skills, right? When we were looking at the, the things that mattered, right? It wasn't, it didn't measure up with their cognitive abilities. And I, I wondered, I looked at the students that I was serving, right, in elementary school and then also the students that I've I'm there with the other therapists and seeing them treat these students in middle school and high school and said, wait, how can that be? I don't want that for any of the students that I'm seeing. I don't I want them to have a positive functional outcome in adulthood or in post-secondary education. I want them to I want the sky to be the limit for the students that I was seeing. So with that, I just looked at the took, I remember making copy of that article went and highlighted a lot of different things that I thought was like striking for me and just wanted to do something about it. <laughs> I wanted, at that time, I was maybe a therapist for five, six years, but I wanted better for the students. I didn't have kids at that time, but those kids were my kids and they still are. I wanted them to have a positive adult outcome. So with that, I went, set up an appointment with um, Dr. Patton in her office. And I said, I have an idea. I'm going to all these middle schools, high schools, and I see what's to come. And I know as an elementary school therapist, I'm great at supporting my kindergartners, my first graders, my second graders. And sometimes third grade could be a little bit, you know, you're kind of like, okay, where do we go with OTs? Because OT, right? In kindergarten, you know, handwriting is something we go cutting and all those skill set. But I saw something in middle school that we weren't really focusing on in elementary school. So looking at all the functional outcomes and looking at the, what the data was saying, looking at what the students in middle schools were doing, looking at the students, what they were doing in high school, and looking at the students that I was servicing, um, Dr. Patton was you know, kind enough to get a consultant, Joja Zach, who's an autistic self-advocate, to come in um, and support us. So we decided to create something called the Middle School Checklist. And the Middle School Checklist was really the pivot point for the independence curriculum, right? So the Middle School Checklist looked at all the functional outcomes that we wanted to see with our students. We wanted to see executive functioning skills, right? We wanted to see how are their IADLs, we want to see their self-advocacy and social participation and interest and self-regulation skills. So through that, after we created all of this, we kind of like had 
providers that were in the program take a look, gave us feedback. Jojo Zach gave us tons of positive feedback. Um, and we switched around the things that weren't so good, right? We debated over our shoe time for a little bit. Um, and we came up with a middle school checklist. And I have to say, Sarah, the middle school checklist became a game changer for therapists. It became a game changer for elementary school therapists, and it became a game changer for middle school therapists because no longer am I in elementary school, third grade, maybe fourth grade, and my student just wondering, what else am I supposed to work on, right? I, we've worked on hair writing for three, four years. I can't, there's no, right now I should be looking at assistive device, right? Like at this point, right? What else? I've, I've worked on all of these, the cutting skills. What else can I look? So that middle school checklist gave the therapist a, a, a visual skew of like what they should be working on with their students or what are things to come. So with that, there's three versions was created. There's a teacher version, teacher service provider. We did that on purpose, right, to foster that communication. And then we did the student version, which was such a great one to do because the student version has all the components that is in the teacher version and the parent caregiver version. The, the student version has it all. And we said, we want to really check and see how our students are doing across different contexts at home, at school, and what is our students' awareness of their needs and strengths. So with that checklist, we got to get a lot of data. So providers were able to use this middle school checklist as a market point to say, okay, my student is in fifth grade now. They are able to transition to middle school. How are they? What are the, some of the skill sets that they need support in? What are their strengths? And if, you know, there's a scoring criteria associated with this, if they have this um, set score or a range, then, you know, utilizing the independence curriculum for middle school would be beneficial, right? And the independent curriculum really works on all these functional um, narratives. And then this also gave that elementary school therapist really goals to skew out and to say, okay, these are the goals because I'm noticing here the teachers are expressing these concerns. I'm seeing these same concerns during OT services. The parent has alluded to these concerns at home and the student is also saying that they don't feel like they're good at this, right? So these are some of the things that we can use as our um, goals for IEPs. These are things that the students is well aware of and they want to also work on with them. So really given autonomy to providers and to teachers and to parents and to students. What program or what, you know, what tool does that? And we wanted to really bring that autonomy back from just thinking it's going to just magically happen and put it in this checklist that we felt um, will really target and skew out the things that we felt our students needed at the moment. I've never thought about this as a theme on the podcast, but I feel like all of our guests have this moment where they're they're practicing or they're in school and they're like, how can I do better as a therapist? And that seems like a simple question, but if you have the courage to really ask that, it's like buckle up for a journey because everything is more complex than we think it is. Um, the pathway forward is, I don't know, just feels like you could never guess that you would ask that question and then get to this checklist and then get to this independence curriculum. It's a just an incredible journey that you went on. Um, I can hear from the development of the middle school checklist, which I glanced at and I was like, all these things are totally within the realm of OT, but maybe pushing us to think more expansively than we usually do. Um, and I can see how that led into the independence curriculum. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about the development of the curriculum itself, um, was that a lot of trial and error? Did it was it mostly informed by research or informed by practice or both? Um, tell me that story. Sure. So um, again, the middle school checklist was just the beginning, and we, you know, th came up with this um, independence curriculum as a support for the middle school in, um, checklist. Right. So we it took us 
a year. We piloted the independence curriculum for a year. And what the independence curriculum is, is a curriculum with five modules or units, right? So the first unit is um, students' rules or responsibilities. And that happens around September, October, right? So we wanted to make sure that we gave therapists enough time to really allocate to supporting students, especially in September and October at in school time, right? This is when the students are really learning their what their place is in the classroom, what is their roles in the school system, right? So working on that. So then we went into IADLs and we talked about what are students, what are the things? How do we make a sandwich? How do you, how, if you're hungry, what are the steps you can use to make a sandwich, right? And then we went into student um, social participation and interest as another unit. One of the things that I feel we did really well with this curriculum was knowing how important self-regulation is, right? Knowing that self-regulation is not something that happens in two months. <laughs> knowing that self-regulation doesn't happen four months, but self-regulation happens throughout. So one of the things that we did is all the units are built upon each other, right? So we have students' roles responsibility, and then we're really interweaving that into the other unit and interweaving strategies of self-regulation into all the unit. And then the last unit is community integration. And this is where we really focus on a lot of the money skills and, you know, really going into the store and buying things. So we really wanted to make sure that this curriculum was functional. And this is something that we're working on students, not just academics are important, Sarah, we're not saying academics is not important at all. This is, that's why we're there, right? We want to support the students with their academics. But what I want to kind of like, you know, want to say is functional tasks, daily living tasks support students' academic. Daily living tasks is really the way of being, right? Being able to manage everything will support academics. So we wanted to make sure that we are giving them really paying attention and being intentional. And that's why we broke up into the units instead of just making it all mesh together. We isolated the units, but we also wanted to make sure that it was interweaving into each other and then sprinkling in um, self-regulation throughout the entire unit. So typically, it, it, you know, it happens for a 10-month program, right? And the, it's the mandate for the IC it's one time, 45 or a duration of a period, whatever that period is. And we really strongly encourage a group, a group dynamic. So up to four students, right? So this way they could work together. They could collaborate. They could really work on that self-regulation, um, executive function and skills together. Hmm. I'm just meeting you for this podcast, but I'm guessing about you that one of your strengths is staying focused on what's important because I'm thinking about you reading that paper originally and seeing these post-secondary outcomes that weren't as good and how this curriculum that you designed is so targeted long-term. Um, it's not just about the short-term success in that school year. It's really about that long-term um, success. And I love how you've been able to stay focused on that even as you're doing something as complicated as putting together this curriculum. That's really incredible. I have so many questions I want to ask about the independence curriculum. Um, and I'll ask some practical ones, but I also want to start with this big picture theoretical one of the focus on self-determination and why that was so important to you. And I guess just the importance of self-determination overall for these students. What made you focus on that? Yeah, self-determination. Ah, that is such a big term. Yeah, yes. Times we're using it. You know, there's now a lot more literature out there than when we started writing about the um, IC curriculum and the you know our article. Um, so many different articles out, but I do want to make sure that there's a distinction, right? So a lot of times we use self-determination interchangeably with like self-efficacy. I know you talked about that earlier or self-advocacy, right? But I just wanted to just break it down a little bit just so that we really all have a real 
great concept of self-determination. And I I want I always think of self-determination at this. I'm going to close my eyes so I could visualize it. Um, self-determination is really the ability for an individual to what? Make choices, set their personal goals, um, have preferences, values, and interests. And that is a lot, right, for the definition of self-determination. And as a therapist, that can be overwhelming for anybody to kind of like digest self-determination. That will have your head spinning in terms of (laughs) what you focus on, just like what you said. But if you think about self-determination as a big umbrella term, let's think about the umbrella, right? We have the canopy of the umbrella. Self-determination is the canopy of the umbrella, right? It is the big construct, right? And under that self-determined, that umbrella, there's those ribs of the umbrella, right? That makes up the umbrellas. Those like, have you seen the ribs, Sarah? Like oh, those yeah. <laughs> ribs of the umbrella yeah. with the tip. Those are the tiny constructs of the umbrella, which we consider as self-efficacy, right? Self-management, self-regulation, self-advocacy. There's executive functioning. There's so many tiny constructs under this big canopy of self-determination that gives us that word of self-determination. And sometimes when we think about this just big term that is often used interchangeably in our profession and many other professions, it could be overwhelming to kind of focus on just one thing, right? Because it's such a big term that has so many different things that are looking at different things, right? Like executive functioning and self-advocacy are looking at two different things. (laughs) So the way, you know, so having that clear distinction, and we know that these little ribs are all connected to make one umbrella. I just want to make sure that we, we are clear. It's all interconnected. So the Looking at this through the independence curriculum, we wanted to make sure we tease that out a little bit and put into focus what we wanted to really look at. We wanted to look at our students' ability to engage in daily living skills, right? What are their self-regulation skills and self-advocacy skills, right? We wanted to really tease it out. And I hope we did that job (laughs) in making something that was... um, easily digestible and then also relatable and practical. It's so interesting because I think as therapists, we're used to thinking about those ribs in the, of the umbrella, those components, um, self-regulation, self-advocacy, goal setting, executive function. But for me reading this paper, it was a big mind stretch to think about self-determination as that overarching umbrella. I hadn't heard that before, but so useful to have a visual of how all these things we work on are interconnected um, and relates back to um, what we were talking about as far as having just that big picture focus for our students of ultimately bringing all these things together for long-term success. Um, I think that's so helpful and we've known all the components of it and it's like you put it together for us and many people before you, but. (laughs) Yes, and and also like in the school base, when we're thinking about like self-determination, really what it is is empowering our students and really bringing autonomy back to them, right? And having them have a voice into our sessions having them have make decisions and choices. And especially in elementary school, when we're working with students in elementary school, we are so used to, you know, the setup of elementary school doesn't really allow too much autonomy, right? Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) you walk into the classroom, you know, there's your name is on the desk where you're supposed to sit, right? Which is great for elementary school. But for a lot of our students, that autonomy wasn't, there, right? They they were told where to sit. They were told when to go to the bathroom. They have color-sorted folders that will help them. And these are all great skills and all great strategies to use. But what we what I've noticed o- over the years is then we send our students to el- middle school from elementary school and say, here you go. Yes. <laughs> now you have all the autonomy. You make it happen. And high school, right? Here you go. 
you have it, make it happen. Coordinate your time when you're going to do your papers. You have to like get all everything that you're supposed to do. You have to have great executive functioning skills. And it's, we, we have, we need a buffer. We need a time to really have our students practice these skills. And that's what really the independence curriculum is saying. Like they need to get a little bit of that autonomy back. So definitely, um, this is really where it kind of come into term with self-determination and all those sub-constructs. I'm thinking about the practical implications of this and starting just with writing like IEP goals. And that was one of the takeaways from the paper was that we should be incorporating uh, a self-determination goals within our IEP goals. And I wanted to ask you, what does that look like practically? Do you see therapists writing overarching self-determination goals or are they addressing the different components? What's the student's involvement? Walk me through just like a practical example of what a self-determination IEP goal could look like. Yeah. So I think self-determination is a holistic viewpoint of the student, right? So knowing what the student's strengths are, it's very helpful to be able to really have a great goal that is related to that student, right? So writing the self-determination goal really means having that clinical experience to say, what are the things that the student is great at? What are the things that the student needs additional support in? And how can we bring their voice into it? So for example, if we're writing a goal, um, and a lot of times you don't see these goals, that a student will be able to speak up for themselves, right? And express when they don't understand something or express um, that they need to, they need help, right? That is a goal that if a student is struggling in that, that is a goal that we should make sure these goals are within the IEP, right? And we want to make sure that the goals are measurable for that student, whether we're using a goal attainment scaling or whatever means, but we want to make sure that we are looking at all those subconstructs and see which area that the student really needs support in, and then using those um, areas to draft a goal that is measurable for that student and is really also give that student uh, autonomy. That student could help you construct the goals together. Um, they could tell you how they feel they will be well-equipped to measure it. So this, these are the things that it, it really bring into working together and collaborating with the caregivers, the teachers, as well as the student to really tease out what goals are applicable for that student. Hmm. Yeah, it's almost like we're using the basic components of goal setting that we all know, but coming at it from this different, more holistic lens. Um, Thinking about assessment, are there assessments that um, align with this kind of view set that you would recommend or utilize for uh, therapists who are in the school setting now? Yeah. So there isn't, I want to be complete transparent, there isn't, at least on the things that I've looked at, there isn't assessment that is all encompassing, right? Meaning there isn't one, since we talked about now, we know a lot about self-determination and those little ribs and sub um, construct that there isn't a, a, a assessment that looks at all the constructs, right? But there are some that are out there, like the AIR self-determination scale, which was one of the assessments that we use in the study. They have a teacher version, a student version, and a caregiver version. And this assessment is also online, free online. There's also something called uh, a, a checklist called the Armstrong Neurodiversity Strength Checklist, which I love. Because sometimes we get stuck on what is strengths, right? And this checklist just put a lot of different things into perspective for when you're trying to see what are some of the things that students are good at, right? And then there is um, their ARC self-determination scale that is also free online. So I think for a therapist, you know, looking at some of these scales and, and checklists that are in the independence curriculum, che- the middle school checklist, are great to kind of find what will work best for you, right? So some of them might measure maybe a certain construct that you're really interested in, and others might measure another one. So really teasing out, but um, we can, you know, share some of the other um, assessments and scales that I 
found over the years that really kind of measure some components of cell determination. Mm-hmm. Yep, I will put these in the show notes for people, and I'm excited to look at them. There's some you mentioned that I've never looked at before, um, and we'll also include the middle school checklist too for people to see and um, utilize. As far as the curriculum itself, I know that it's used by the Department of Education in New York and isn't publicly available at this time. But can you tell us components that could be useful for therapists to use in their the intervention part? Or I don't know, what would you do if you were a school therapist and you were trying to build something to accomplish similar things? Yeah, sure. So I think as a therapist, um, you're going to give them access to the three versions of the middle school checklist. Look at the checklist, you know, see if the components or the things that it looks at are things that you are concerned about, or at least start, there's a, a provider checklist, the teacher provider, start doing the checklist with some of for some of the students that you're currently seeing and see like how how if it targets some of the areas that you want to measure or look at. So I think for a therapist just starting to look at some of these, uh, you know, scales and checklists we talked about, you now would have access to the independence curriculum, the three versions, and then as well as a PowerPoint that um, we really go in a little bit in depth with the checklist as well as some parts of the curriculum. As a therapist, the clinical reasoning is endless, right? We have that ability. So start looking and start reading and start seeing what you think will be a best tool for your student and for yourself to use. I always found that the the tools that I use the most as a therapist, because we don't really have, especially school-based therapists, we don't have a lot of time. We don't, right? You're between sessions, you're picking up the students, you know, there's a lot of, you know, notes that we're writing. So I tend to, one, gravitate towards the stuff that are free, right? And then also the things that I can say it's quick and easy for me to use and quick and easy for others to use, right? So do the work. Um, Now you have a list of other checklists that you can also look at that most of them are free online. And this will start, you know, your your journey to really looking at us, our students from that autonomous perspective, that self-determined lens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how you gave us this framework of things to focus on, the checklist. And I looked at the PowerPoint and it did give like practical help for what can intervention look like. And I do think therapists have um, a lot of the skill they need then to bring that into the classroom and start helping their students in that way. You have done so much already, this middle school checklist, the independence curriculum. I'm curious, what do you see as the future of this work for you? Is it developing the curriculum? Is it going somewhere else? What do you, what do you see in the next five to 10 years? Oh, that's great question. <laughs> I, you know, I've I've been a clinical therapist or clinician for over almost two decades. I know, dating myself a little bit. Um, and I, one of the things that I've always held in such regard was being a therapist. It was uh, a privilege, right, to be able to serve and and work with the students that I was able to work with. And over the, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, I transitioned from being a, a, a therapist to a supervisor of occupational therapy, in addition to going back to school to be a researcher. So for me, I want to still do the work as um, I want to hold that clinical perspective to the highest regard. Because I feel like clinically, this is these are we are the ones that are able to really see what's happening in real time, right? We're able to see you have that nagging thing or that question that you always want. So you never, as a therapist, and I'm talking to you all, therapist there, if you have something that is nagging at you, keep looking it up, keep researching emails, send re- emails out 
to whoever you feel might have the answer to that question. Never stop asking questions. But for me, in five years, I'm hoping, right, we to look more into self-advocacy. I want to look, start off really looking at self-advocacy across the lifespan. I want to really start looking up and not just looking at that over the big umbrella canopy term of um, self-determination, but really doing the work onto all those sub-constructs, right? And really bringing that OT focus into those constructs. So I'm, you know, right now in the midst of doing some research in that area, and I'm hoping to do more of that, but never losing sight of my clinical standpoint and always giving the voice to the population that we serve. Yeah. Such an exciting time in this, um, in our work where the work like you're doing on self-determination and self-advocacy, these terms are established, but they're also new and they're under development. And I think there's a lot of exciting things to come in the future. You've had such an inspiring story. And the last question I wanted to ask you was just thinking about therapists who are where you were at early in your journey, where they're working, they feel like things could be better. Maybe they feel discontent or burnt out or overwhelmed by the system. I can imagine working in the New York schools that that seems like an immovable system. What advice do you have for those therapists? Wow, that's a good question. I think I'm going to kind of pull it back a little bit and think of myself when I was there. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, you know, and just the first thing is, Take a deep breath. Your gut or these the questions that you have, you're onto something. And my advice is don't give up. Keep going. You know, bur- when you're feeling burned out, definitely take, you know, balancing and taking a, a moment to yourself to center yourself is very important. But when you get back, Keep asking those questions because those questions is what makes those strong, positive changes. Those questions are really what is going to benefit that population, that student that you're serving. And those questions is what creates something new that the world hasn't seen, right? Like the world didn't know what the IC was. The IC came out of a nag and the IC came out of fear that I didn't want. Any of my students, especially because we are functional people, right? We're functional clinicians. I didn't want my students, I didn't want any students to have to go through that and not have the skill set that we can impart on them. So keep asking your questions. And if you don't get the answer, keep asking someone else. And, you know, really what you're doing it's magical and what you're doing is not easy. It's, it, it's hard, but we, we do it because we love the population that we work in and we do it because we want to be the change we want to see in the world. I know that sounds very cliche, but it is true. I didn't want to leave that to chance. I didn't want to leave that to anybody saying, we're going to come and look at functional outcome for the students that I was seeing. So that's really my advice to you is you can make a change. Just keep asking those questions and keep looking for those answers. Hmm. That makes me feel um, like the sting of tears in my eye because that is so beautiful. And um, I'm so thankful for the OTs now who get to hear your story and the trailblazing that you did and just have a vision of what that can look like to ask the hard question and buckle up for the journey and don't give up along the ride so yeah and be curious and sometimes you might be mm-hmm. wrong but be curious yeah. <laughs> you'll probably be wrong at some point yeah so. <laughs> Dora this has been just such an incredible time together we're already at our rapid fire are you up or open for a couple more questions absolutely okay <laughs> come on finish this sentence for me occupational therapy is Occupational therapy is love. 
mm. well-being, empowerment, and giving the voice to the people that we see and serve. What's a moment you've had in therapy that you'll never forget? Many moments. Many, many moments. The one that really comes to me right now is many years ago, I had um, I, I was seeing a student. He was three at that time. And I just remember being in a really small room with this student. And this student... What I remember at that time putting on his evaluation, untestable, untestable, untestable. Every single area was untestable. Again, be curious and be wrong, right? And the thing is, I just saw the the passion. I saw the the I saw in his eyes that there was more to that untestable. That was just a test. So over the years, working with him, working with his family, and recently, um, I got a, a a mail for graduation. He, well, he got his license. He became a swimmer and uh, um, working at a pool and got into his top choice school at one of the top tier universities. And in that moment, just thinking about the untestable notes that I put on that evaluation. And if I stopped there and focused on his deficits, right? Because we were taught in OT school to be deficit-based and not strength-based and just got stuck there. I wouldn't have been able to see all that it is, the student now, right? It's been years from three to now. And he is doing so well and so amazing. So that is, I mean, I have many other more, and that could be another podcast. <laughs> but um, that is just the, the power that we have to make changes and, and change people's lives. We have a true power. So for me, I have those stories, and those stories I hold near and dear to my heart because sometimes tests, it's not an indicator of anything, but merely test and how well you take tests. Well, I can definitely hear those stories and that passion in your work and in your writing. We have talked about so many things today that are also important, but I was wondering if there's a final thought you want to leave us on. Final thought. Uh, so to, I guess I want to speak to my fellow OTs. I want to say that the work you're doing is powerful. The work you're doing is amazing. I know sometimes it's hard. And I know sometimes if you might feel like you're not being noticed for all the hard work that you're doing to change the lives of the population of kids, adults that you serve. But it, it's always being rewarded. Those clients of yours, those students of yours are better because they have you as a therapist. So keep pushing forward. Keep asking questions. Be curious. And sometimes you might be wrong, or maybe a lot of times you might be wrong, but keep pushing through. Dora, thank you so much for your words today. Thank you for your work and... I'm excited to see where things go from here. I am too. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, you all, this was such an incredible episode. I loved hearing all the practical steps that you can take to help your clients with self-determination. We have lots of resources in the show notes to help you, including the middle school checklist, which you are free to use, and a PowerPoint about the independence curriculum, which gives you a great starting point for building your own interventions. I also wanted to remind you that if you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. Once you're in the club, you can take a five question test related to this podcast. And if you pass, we will award you a certificate for your time. And as always, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today. 
I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk next time.